Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 786 with Eric Barker. Eric had some great insights on how to truly strengthen relationships if they're at work, if they're outside of work. Either way, it's going to make you more awesome at your job and have more fun and energy and good stuff flowing. So you'll learn one, the two critical elements of trust building, two, the secret to dealing with difficult people, and three, how to navigate tricky conversations. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to pieces that we reference here, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP786. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out our gold nugget email summaries. Here we provide a quick summary write-up of the actionable wisdom that each guest shares an email you can read in about two or three minutes goes to your inbox, and it also unlocks the vault of all 786 of these such summaries. Those are gold nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Eric's story. Eric Barker is the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, which has sold over half a million copies and been translated into 19 languages. It was even the subject of a question on Jeopardy. Over half a million people have subscribed to his weekly newsletter. His work's been covered in many media outlets such as the New York Times, The Atlantic, and more. He is a sought-after speaker, given talks at MIT, Yale, Google, United States, Military Central Command, and others. And his new book, Plays Well with Others, was released just recently by HarperCollins. Now, big thanks to Eric for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here's Eric. Eric, welcome back to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. That's great to be here, man. Well, I'm excited to talk about your book, Plays Well with Others, the surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. And I got a kick out of your dedication page. It is to the relationships that you've screwed up. Could you tell us a key story there about a screw up and some principles learned? I mean, it's never been my specialty at all. The five factors that uh, psychologists use to determine someone's personality, one of them is agreeableness. And out of a possible score of 100, I scored a four. So disagreeable, probably not helping there. So, I mean, that's one of the things that led me to to write the book was that I'm not a specialist with relationships. But then actually, two weeks after I closed the deal to write the book, California locked down for the pandemic. And I realized maybe I wasn't the only one who was going to be needing a little relationship defibrillator after all this was over. I see. Okay. So low on agreeableness. And so could you tell us a tale of how that got you into some trouble once? 
I mean, I can't off the top of my head, I can't think of a, a specific time, but it's funny. The same trait that has harmed me in my relationships actually helps me in my writing because I tend to always challenge things, debate things, to not easily go with the flow, to want to like test things, play Mythbusters. And that's basically how both my books are structured, like taking the maxims that we all kind of assume are true about, you know, relationships and wanting to say, wait a second, is that really true? Should I, should I look up the evidence here? So it's, there is a silver lining. Well, it's funny as I'm thinking about my relationships, I've got a friend, I'm thinking my buddy Avon in particular seems to love to take the other view every time. (laughs) And I don't even know if he really believes what he's saying or if he's just trying to to, to razz me or if he, he finds it fun. And it's interesting. It's like some people love that and some people hate that. Like, oh, what an interesting thing we're exploring. Hmm. We're doing a little bit of banter, a little back and forth volley exploring and i was like oh my gosh like just can it eric is is that your experience as well some love it some hate it oh no absolutely that's the thing where like i said it's after a day of like working hard writing on the book i kind of have to tell my okay turn it off turn it off don't need to test and question everything anymore it's a it works out really well with the writing not so much uh, as well with other people all right well could you kick us off with a particularly surprising or fascinating discovery you've made about relationships while you're researching and writing this book? Yeah, one thing that really blew me away was the research on loneliness. Like Faye Alberti is a historian at the University of York, and she basically found that before the 19th century, loneliness pretty much didn't exist. Sounds crazy. No kid. But basically, we were all embedded in, you know, religions, nations, tribes, groups. We always felt like we were connected to other people. And what's really interesting is that aligns with some of the scientific, the psychological research on loneliness, which is that lonely people don't spend any less time with others than non-lonely people do. Hmm. Again, sounds crazy, but we've all had that feeling of being lonely in a crowd. Just because you're on the subway or in the middle of Times Square, you can be surrounded by people and that doesn't mean you feel connected to them. What John Cacioppo, the leading researcher on loneliness, found is that loneliness is how you feel about your relationships. If you have good relationships, strong connections, and you're going on a business trip, you don't feel desperately lonely. You know that there are people who care about you. They're just not near nearby you. But if you don't feel strong connections to people, you can be surrounded by others. You could be at a sporting event, and you're not going to feel that great. You know, loneliness is, again, how you feel about your relationships. So in the past, we had these deep kind of near tribal connections to others. We were always part of a group. And these days, we saw basically post-19th century, the rise of individualism. And so we don't feel those strong connections. Loneliness is an issue of perception. When we aren't near others, but we feel we have strong connections, that's solitude. That's a positive. That's me time. That feels good. You know that people are there, but you get a little time to yourself. But when we don't feel those strong connections, neuroscience actually shows that our brains scan for threats twice as fast, which from a in our ancestral environment makes sense. If you don't think help is coming, you need to be on the lookout for danger. But that's that's not terribly conducive to happiness. Okay. Well, I guess we're getting into it. Tell us, Eric, what what is to be done if we are feeling not so great about our relationships and we've got some loneliness cooking? 
It's really an issue of deepening our relationships. I mean, the first thing I did when I, in the section of the book on friendships, the first thing I did was look at Dale Carnegie because that's the book everybody knows, you know, how to win friends and influence people. That's right. And that book was written before the advent of social science research. It's all anecdotal. But the crazy thing is that the primary pillars of uh, Carnegie's book all prove true. They've all been verified except, except for one. And that is he, he says to put yourself in the other person's shoes and research shows we're, we're actually pretty bad at that. <laughs> but everything else, finding similarity, paying people compliments, listening, these are all positives. The, the thing is Carnegie's book is written mostly for developing business contacts. So it's at the more shallow end of the pool. But for deepening relationships, what I found is that the research seems to point towards two things, and that is time and vulnerability. Time is really critical. It is the thing that research shows friends fight about the most. And time is a powerful, costly signal. You spend time with people. We only got 24 hours in a day. You keep spending time with somebody, it it shows you care. And vulnerability is opening up. That's telling people what's on your mind, your stresses, your challenges. We're usually afraid to do this, but this is what really creates trust. By talking about the things we're afraid of, we tell the other person that we're, we trust them. Otherwise, we wouldn't say it. And that leads people to reciprocate. And that's how you build trust. So it's really critical for us to go past the small talk. And very often, we can feel stuck in the small talk. And it's time and vulnerability that, that will deepen relationships, make us feel closer to others, and help us beat loneliness. It's funny. I've, I've moved about a year ago from Chicago to the Nashville area. And I am more distant from many of my close friends than I used to be. And so I, I've been thinking a bit about how one forms uh, great friendships, particularly as it's a little bit of a different ball game, being 38 with two kids and a wife, uh, than being 24 and woo! Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Just out exactly. and about for many nights in a given week. So tell me, is there a... I guess it'd be hard to precisely quantify this with all the variability in, in humanity, but like, what kind of time are we talking about here, Eric? I mean, what's really interesting is uh, Jeff Hall did some research on how much time it takes to go from just meeting someone to being like a good friend or a best friend. And it's some pretty depressing research. It, it could take hundreds of hours to, to get to like closer best friend. But on the flip side, it is a matter of how we handle it and what we do. Arthur Aaron did research and by giving people a series of questions to get them like opening up and talking, he managed to get people in a laboratory setting to feel like lifelong friends in only 45 minutes. In fact, two of his research assistants who were working on the project with him actually fell in love and got married uh, because of working on this. So it's really that issue of vulnerability, of, of opening up. Usually when we first meet somebody, we, we, we're often tempted to try to impress them. But the literature shows that, you know, signaling high status, like while it might impress people and it might be good in maybe a sales or a business context, on a personal level, it tends to distance people. You know, they, they don't feel related to you. They feel like you're above them or something. You know, meanwhile expressing yourself as a peer or actually showing human relatable flaws. That's the thing that makes us understand, relate, connect with people because we all have those those insecurities. And when you express them, it's like we get that feeling where we can relax, where we can relate. So that's the thing we really need to keep in mind. And I'm curious when it comes to vulnerability, that sounds like sharing the stresses, the problems, the worries, 
To what extent is there also connective value in sharing the joys? Oh, I mean, sharing joys is really positive. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, The literature points to something they call capitalization. And that is when your friends or your spouse talk about something positive that happened to them, it's really important to ask questions. It's really important to be happy for them. In fact, uh, was it Shelley Gable did research at UCSB and she found that actually celebrating those positive moments, how you handle the positive moments was actually more predictive of romantic relationship success than how you handle the difficult moments. It's like, it sounds crazy because we're always so focused on fixing things, on trying to resolve the problems in a romantic relationship But John Gottman found that 69% of the ongoing problems in a romantic relationship never get resolved. You're not going to fix all of these things. You're not going to fix most of these things. It's It's about the regulation of conflict, not the resolution of conflict. But on the flip side, you want to be a supporter. You want to be a cheerleader. You want to share your positives. You want them to, to feel good for you, to be curious about it. And you want to do the same for them. This is a positive relationship uh, tip you can use anywhere, especially in a romantic relationship, is to really look for those positive things, be supportive, be the cheerleader. This is a huge thing that we often forget about because we're usually, we're usually trying to bring the bottom up rather than trying to raise the roof. And it's really important to celebrate those positive moments. That's good. That's good. Any pro tips on how that's done in practice? I am. <laughs> I think I just, I just watched the show Devs and somebody <laughs> kept mentioning that they wanted a champagne bath. (laughs) So I guess that's one tactic is to bring a bottle of champagne with you to splatter people when they're excited, although they might not receive that so well in real life. Like I'm all wet now and sticky. (laughs) Uh, But uh, so any other uh, more practical recommendations for celebration? I know, I guess what we don't want to do is say, okay, that's nice. And just boom, brush aside. But yeah, like what's that sound like in practice? What some of the advice that they give romantic couples is pretty straightforward at the end of every day. You say the best thing that happened to you that day and your spouse says the best thing happened to them that day. And again, like like you said, you don't want to be dismissive. You don't want to just nod your head and acknowledge it. It's like you want to be happy for them. You want to ask questions. You want to just be listening and be supportive and be excited. It's about that emotional back and forth. So it's like just consistently. It almost sounds weird, but it's like even with your friends, it's like, hey, what good things have happened lately? It's not something we usually do, but it's not too crazy a question. And I think most people are pretty happy to talk about the positives that are going on. You're basically letting them brag. Yeah. It's like that feels good. And if there's somebody you care about, it's going to feel good for you too. And it can have very positive effects for the relationship. I remember a motivational speaker once mentioned that he had someone, I think it was at work, and that was just sort of like their go-to line when they started talking. They'd say, tell me something good. And everyone liked that person. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's just what Marty says. And I like Marty because go figure. People are telling him something good all the time and he's getting the goods and and celebrating with them. Well, it's, it's a funny thing because like I said, very often, especially in romantic relationships, we're usually focused on like fixing the negative. But it's, it's like if you step back for a second and think about that, if all you're doing is fixing the negative, then like really ceteris paribus, that means you're going to get to neutral. Even if everything worked, if the 69% of long-term issues could be resolved, you'd just get to neutral. And I have a 
not negative relationship with every stranger on this planet. It's like, that's not love. It's like, you you don't want to get to neutral. You want to be beyond that. You want to be supportive. That's why one of the other things I, I talk about, at least specific for romantic relationships, is doing exciting stuff together. Because the thing is that there's a psychological principle called emotional contagion. And basically what that means is we tend to associate the feeling that we're having in any contact, in any context, we associate it with the people we're with. So if you're doing fun stuff, you associate that with your partner and that keeps the relationship alive. It keeps things exciting. And so we need to do more of that. You know, too much, too much Netflix and pizza on the couch. We we actually need to get out more and do more exciting, fun things so we can, we can keep those, those positive feelings flowing. All right. Thank you. Well, we went, we went deep on, on, on loneliness and friendship and forming bonds. Maybe we could zoom out a bit and could you share with us what's like the main big idea or thesis behind the book plays well with others? Well, one theme that I found throughout all the aspects of it that I was looking at is that relationships really do come down to stories, stories in your head. The first section of the book, I talk about the issue. It's like, like, don't they say, don't judge a book by its cover. And I kind of tested that. I went, I went and looked at the research on body language and communication and reading people. And, and what happens is as soon as we meet somebody for the first time, or even if we're seeing somebody we've known for a while, our brains are immediately telling us a story about who this person is and we can't help it. We start making assumptions in milliseconds and it's an issue of revising that story, but that story is going to be there. And in a romantic relationship, John Gottman, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he's the leading researcher on love and marriage. And his claim to fame is that he can predict whether a couple will be divorced in five years just by talking to them for a few minutes. And he can do this with about 90 plus percent accuracy. And how he does that is simply asking the couple, each member of the couple, tell me your story. And when he listens to that story, if it's this story of overcoming challenges and like that's really something celebrating those difficulties and getting past it, that's a really positive sign. But it's, it's not about the facts and details because we forget most of the facts and details. We congeal them into this story. And if that story is positive, things are really good. And past that, the final section of the book I talk about, uh, I test, is no man is an island. You know, is that true? And it's this issue of communities have a story, a story they tell about who the members are, what we, what means to, what, what is important to us, what do we value? And that story is what draws us together. So it's this really critical element of understanding the stories of how we perceive others, how we're connected to others, the community that we're a part of. This is kind of the, the subtext, the element that undergirds everything that goes on between, uh, between human relationships. And what's interesting about that is you could just change your story about a relationship you have with somebody without interacting with them in any subsequent way. So like you could just choose to reinterpret and reformulate your story about your relationship with them in your head. Could you not? Oh, absolutely. And that can be a positive thing and that can be a negative thing. Yeah. We can reflect on it and we can look at different aspects and we can say, you know what? I've been judging them too harshly. Like I forgot, like there were those few times where that person really went out of their way to help me. And I dismissed that. Or on the flip side, something that's common with long-term relationships and marriages is that people sometimes they're, they, they don't want to fight. They don't want to argue. So they don't raise issues. And when you don't raise issues, they can't get resolved. And so instead of people having a conversation about their spouse with about an issue, they start having a conversation with themselves. And that doesn't always go so well because you start making assumptions about what they believe, where they stand, why they did what they did. 
And this can be really problematic because now we're not actually getting insight from them. We're making it up ourselves. And that can quickly turn negative because what what a lot of people don't realize is that, yes, you don't want to fight. But the truth is yelling and screaming that only only 40 percent of the time does that result in divorce. What is more likely to result in divorce is when couples stop talking. You yell and scream because you care. When you stop caring, you stop interacting. And that's what more often precedes divorce is when couples start living parallel lives where they're not communicating, they're not connecting, they're not arguing, they're not resolving problems. They're just going, it's not worth it, and living their own life. That's what usually precedes divorce. Okay, thank you. And if we shift the focus into the workplace and professionals and those looking to be awesome at their job, what are some of the the best takeaways for folks looking to have strong relationships with their their boss, their peers, their clients, their suppliers, etc.? Well, like I said, in terms of friendship, those are some of the really key things is trying to trying to deepen those relationships. Like I said, time, vulnerability. But another thing we deal with in the workplace is that with our friendships, the interesting thing about friendships in, in our personal lives is you can leave whenever you want. When in the workplace, you're going to have to deal with some people that maybe you don't like so much. That's the tricky part about it because of the role. And what the research has shown is that the the people who cause us the most stress aren't actually our enemies because enemies, like we know where we stand. We don't like them. They don't like us. The people that drive us the most crazy are those ambivalent relationships. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. It's that unpredictability. And uh, Julian Holt-Lundstad at BYU has found that that's what drives our blood pressure up is these people who we don't know how they're going to behave, whether they're going to be nice or, or difficult this time. So in terms of dealing with difficult people, what we need to keep in mind is emphasizing three things, emphasizing similarity, emphasizing vulnerability, and emphasizing community, because these are the things that can activate the empathy muscles in someone else. Maybe if they're a little narcissistic, maybe if they're difficult, when we express our similarity to them, when we talk about our vulnerability, weaknesses, when we express community that we're a part of something, that can trigger those empathy muscles that can help us like deal with them a little bit better, help them understand us a little bit better. That's really key to dealing with those difficult people in the workplace. Okay. And and so what does that sound like in practice when to convey similarity? Like, boy, Eric, you and I, we both love a good microphone, don't we? (laughs) Again, we take those things for granted, but that's usually how many relationships start is you're both into a particular sport, a particular sports team, you're both Star Wars fans, you've got something you relate to. And with those people that we we haven't taken the time to find something that we can both relate to and care about, that acts as like a medium for us to work through. So with finding out a little bit more about somebody and finding that connection, you know, research shows this is really powerful in terms of us feeling like we're, we are connected, we're part of the same group. In that way, community-wise, Again, feeling like we're a part of something. We're both working towards similar goals. The research shows that a great way to get people who don't like each other very much to cooperate and feel connected is to have them work on a project together. So when they have to rely on one another. So it's really critical. You know, it sounds a little silly in the abstract, but finding those similar things, asking them enough questions to realize like, hey, we're both into this. It can make a surprising difference. That is good. And, and I'm also thinking about some research. I, I read about it in, in Bob Cialdini's books uh, about moving and or singing or dancing or marching in unison has a powerful effect there. 
I mean, anything like that, that again, builds that kind of similarity that that's in the physical realm Yeah, is that we're doing the same things. We're coordinated. We're working together. That means you're a part of something. You're connected. What's really powerful, I think, from Cialdini's, I mean, he has influence, which is like his, his masterwork, but his other book's excellent as well, Persuasion, yeah. where he talks about how so much of what helps negotiations and conflict resolution isn't the tactics that you use in the middle of it. It's those things that you set up beforehand. And that's where similarity falls in. Once you feel like, hey, we're, we're connected in this way, we both care about this same thing you're more disposed to want to help someone. It's like if a stranger asks you for a favor, that's very different than when a friend asks you for a favor. You have something that connects you beforehand. One of the researchers at uh, Harvard Business School talked about salary negotiations. And again, it wasn't necessarily the specific tactics used during the negotiation. The number one thing that he said was they have to like you was beforehand making sure that they like you, they appreciate you, they feel connected to you. Because again, it's one thing to be dealing with a stranger. It's another thing to be dealing with somebody, the friend, you're much more disposed to give them the benefit of the doubt to say, hey, sure, we don't mind covering that expense. We don't mind doing this. We think about these really nuanced tactics in the middle. But if you can think about the beginning ahead of time and say, how can I really connect with this person emotionally so that they're disposed to want to help me? That's much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And so then with that connection, those are just those principles then of the similarity, vulnerability and community there. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, like I said, that similarity, that's something that we've all had that moment where we're trying to connect with somebody, trying to go from acquaintance to friend and similarity can really help. It gives you something to talk about. It gives you something that you connect on. And then that vulnerability aspect where it's like, we all have our little jerk radar where we don't want to be dealing with somebody who's who's a pain. And when somebody opens up and says, hey, you know what? I actually struggle with this. I'm not that great at it. Or, hey, this actually scares me. That makes humanizes somebody. They're, they're not trying to act like they're above you or better than you. In community, it's like we're connected. It's like sometimes we don't always love our in-laws, but we still behave. We still do favors for them. We still do things because we recognize that we're connected. We're a part of something. And that shifts our perspective. It sure does. And I also want to talk a bit about the digital side of things, social media. How do we use that well, such that we don't create more bitterness, division, self-esteem, problems, jealousy, any pro tips there? Absolutely. You see research back and forth that social media is the devil, social media is not the devil. And like there's some stuff back and forth, but the key thing we want to be thinking about when it comes to social media is time. And that is that you only have 24 hours in a day. Some of that's going to be sleep. Some of that's going to be work. You only have so much of a budget for social time. And if too much of that is being used for social media, then it's not being used for deeper, richer connections like face-to-face. We just want to make sure that social media is not cannibalizing it. You don't want to be replacing the rich, sumptuous meal of face-to-face contact for uh, this, the junk food of social media. If you're using social media to like reach out to somebody who's far away, hey, that can be really that can be positive. If you're using it to communicate with somebody who's nearby and you're using it to get to plan a face-to-face get-together, hey, it's an unalloyed positive. But if we end up consciously or unconsciously using it to replace real relationships, that's when it gets problematic. And when it's eating up too much of the, the buddy budget, the social time just on Instagram, 
that's really where it's quite clear that we're not treating our relationships as well as we could. I hear that. And I'm also thinking about the nature of what you choose to post on social media. And and I found for me, what makes me more favorably disposed to to someone is they share something and it seems like it really is a means of spreading delight and goodness and, and positivity as opposed to a post which says, look how awesome I am. Like, oh, just getting some sushi in Tokyo at the top sushi place ever. It's like, okay, well, good for you, guy. That's that's fun. I guess I'm supposed to think that your life is awesome. As opposed to, I'm thinking about my buddy Patrick. He once posted, when my wife and I are cooking together and sharing instructions or, or collaborating, we respond to each other by saying, yes, chef. <laughs> and it makes cooking so much more fun. And I, I think of that because like, that is awesome. And I do that now too. <laughs> and it really is fun and it spreads joy. And in both contexts, we're talking about doing some food stuff. And yet one post, I think, well, it makes me think more of Patrick, like, oh, this guy is awesome. And not because he's high status, but that he's just putting out joy into the world. This is absolutely, I totally agree. This is something we were kind of touching on earlier, where it's like often when we first meet somebody, people often try to brag. They often try to signal high status. And it's exactly what you said. We see social media posts where clearly the person is bragging, is saying, look, look how awesome I am. That doesn't make us like them more. You know, that doesn't make us feel more warmly connected to them. So that's probably not conducive to positive long-term relationships. But when somebody posts a funny anecdote, or if somebody is poking fun, but it's at themselves, then we do feel positively disposed to them. If somebody puts a warm, positive moment, we react better to that. And these are the kind of things we definitely need to be need to be thinking about because I think we've turned a lot of things, I think by its very nature, social media often tends towards turning things into this kind of social competition because we've got the quantification of likes. You have, a, you have a direct quantification of how much people like this post. That has this kind of almost competitive element to it. And I think to your point, we need to resist the urge to kind of one-up people in that status competition. And another way is to rely on being a little bit more human. Mm-hmm. Well, Eric, tell me any other top do's and don'ts for us looking to improve our relationships? Yeah. One thing from the romantic relationship research, but I think it's applicable in pretty much any relationship context, is John Gottman, that relationship researcher, he found that just by listening to the first three minutes of a conflict discussion between a couple, uh, he could predict the ending 94% of the time. And the positive takeaway from that is if it starts negative, it's going to end negative. If you have to bring up a difficult topic with your spouse or frankly with anybody, if we go in there firing both barrels, the research is pretty clear. If it starts negative, it's going to end negative. So if we present it in a more constructive way, we take a deep breath, we step back, we don't launch into it in this very antagonistic attacking mode, it can be a lot more productive, even though we feel like we earned that we deserve this. I've been I've been victimized. I need to. That's not going to get you the end result you want. Ninety four percent of the time, that's a very high number. So take a deep breath. Think constructively. Don't point fingers. Don't personalize it. Anytime you have to have a conflict discussion, whether it's at home or in the office, don't discuss the other person's character. Talk about the specific issue you had and stick to the facts. All right. Now, Eric, I'd love to hear some of your favorite things. How about a favorite quote? 
Oh, yeah. Well, this was a quote that I uh, meant a lot to me when when I was writing both my books because I was thinking about like testing these maxims and like all these issues we have around both success and relationships. Uh, it's from William Gibson. He said, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And that really resonated with me because I looked at the research and there's a lot of answers to the questions we already have. It's just, it's tied up in all this ivory tower academic research. And so like my focus was trying to take that and make it accessible to people because the answers are already here to many of our problems. It's just not evenly distributed. That's right. That's why I love doing interview podcasts. It's like, hey, I don't have to figure all this out. <laughs> I just have to get Eric to share the goods. Cool. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Uh, there was uh, this. This isn't necessarily practical. It might make people feel a little bit better. But uh, one of the favorite pieces of research is there was one study done on uh, ethics professors and ethicists, and it found that they weren't any more moral than the average person. Hmm, okay. <laughs> so if if you feel like maybe you haven't been behaving that well, even experts in the field, hey, they're not necessarily all that better. So don't beat yourself up. All right. And a favorite book? Favorite book? Oh God, there's so 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 many. I have to say, one of my one of my favorite books recently is my friend David Epstein wrote a book called Range, which is not only really useful, really smart, and it also made me feel much better because it talks about how generalists can thrive and how generalists often do very well because I've always been a generalist and anything that helps me rationalize my decisions is, is amazing and wonderful. And a favorite tool, something you use to be more awesome at your job? I have got to say that I remember many years ago, my friend Drew got these Bose noise canceling headphones. They were pretty pricey. And I was like, why? why? And I'm not a big music guy. I listen to podcasts, but I got to tell you, noise canceling headphones, they've like changed my life. Like, I mean, it's like when you're on planes, I mean, when you're trying to block out noise, you got loud neighbors, it's something silly. I didn't think it was going to be that big a deal, but man, I can't live without them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love them. And sometimes I will put in earplugs and then put on noise canceling headphones. I'm just really into that cone of silence. <laughs> okay, you're playing on serious mode now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it does send a message. It's like a ritual. It's like, all right, no messing around. We're seriously dialing into this. <laughs> oh yeah, no, you're 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 putting on the Batman costume. Like uh -huh. this is like this is it. We're going to war. Oh, I need a montage <laughs> to play during this. It's, yeah, with some really some John Williams music. Yeah. Oh yeah. And a favorite habit? Favorite habit is reading. There's no doubt. My first instinct when I have uh, extra time is to fire up the old Kindle app and. Typically, you think, oh, they're, you know, that person's going to call me back in five minutes or, oh, this is only going to take this long or the Internet will fix itself and be work. My Wi-Fi will be working again. You know what? Sometimes it takes longer than you think. Often it takes longer than you think. So I get myself reading and the time flies by. All right. Is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They highlight it in the Kindle book version of your works or they retweet it a lot? I mean, I think the key thing was in the new book, Plays Well with Others, there's the grant study, which has been going on for nearly a, a century at Harvard. They've been following a group of men, uh, basically their entire lives. I think most of the men are in their 80s or 90s. And so it's interesting, rather than some two-week study or six-week study to see what happens across a person's entire life. As you can imagine, multiple people have led this study because <laughs> it's taken nearly a century. 
And when they asked George Valiant, who was probably the guy who led the study for the longest time, they said, like, what have you learned? And as you can imagine, like the, the amount of information they've collected could fill a warehouse. But he replied with only one sentence. And he said that your relationships to other people are the only thing that matters. All right. And if folks want to learn more, or get in touch, where would you point them? They can go to my blog at ericbarker.org, E-R-I-C-B-A-R-K-E-R.org. And the best thing to follow the insights and tips that I'm finding from the research is to sign up for my weekly newsletter. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. The key thing I would say is, I talked about this in in my first book, was uh, sit down with your boss and ask them what you can do to make their life easier. Ask them what you could be doing point blank to be better at your job and to be a better contributor. There's two benefits here. Number one, you are basically getting the answers to the test. You are, they are going to tell you what you need to be doing. And number two, just in terms of signaling and relationship, how would you feel if you were a boss and an employee came to you and said, how can I make your life easier? What do I need to be doing to be a better contributor? That is a very, very positive signal. And it is going to tell you what you need to be focusing on. It's a simple little thing and it can be a game changer. It absolutely can be. And we had uh, Mary Abajay on the podcast talking about how to manage your manager. And that was one of her very top tips. And she said that she frequently will ask audiences, like, who's who's done this? And it's generally less than 1% of professionals have done that. But yeah, it's it's powerful on both sides. Oh, and then for advanced mode, every week, sum up what you've been up to, what you've accomplished, and send a quick bullet point email to your boss and, and make sure to be focused on that thing that they told you that you are making progress towards what they said was most important. This is extremely valuable. Your boss is busy. They're not watching everything you're doing. So to be telling them, hey, here's what I've been up to, makes them relax, makes them like and appreciate you. You're basically doing a highlight reel. And if things don't work out at that job, you can go back to every Friday email you've sent through all the weeks and you know how to update your resume because you basically have a long list of all the things you've accomplished while you were there. That's so good. Eric, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I wish you much luck with with the book, Plays Well with Others, and all your adventures and relationships. Thank you so much. It was fantastic to be here. I really appreciate Eric's distinction that loneliness is not so much about an absence of people around you, but how you feel about your relationships, which really can shift where we put our energies when our energies are low from loneliness. Great stuff from Eric. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP786. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 
jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.